Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the status of spiritual entities, their ontological status. How real are they? My guest is Dr. Jack Hunter. He is the author of many books, including most recently Spirits, Gods, and Magic, an introduction to the anthropology of the supernatural. He is also editor of a volume titled Greening the Paranormal, Exploring the Ecology of Extraordinary Experience. He is the author of Engaging the Anomalous, a collected Essays on Anthropology, the Paranormal, Mediumship, and Extraordinary Experience. He is the founder of the journal Paranthropology, which he founded as a graduate student, and it's been published now for over a decade. He's co-editor with David Luke of the volume Talking with Spirits, Ethnographies from Between the Worlds. He's the editor of Damned Facts, Fortean Essays on Religion, Folklore, and the Paranormal. He's also the editor of Strange Dimensions, a paranthropology anthology. He's the author of The Paranormal, Why People Believe in Spirits, Gods, and Magic. And he works as a tutor with the Sophia Center for the Study of Cosmology and Culture at the University of Wales, Trinity St. David. This, of course, is an internet interview, and I'll switch over now to the internet video. Welcome, Jack. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. It's a pleasure to be back again. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about uh, a topic that I think is of great interest to our viewers. Uh, essentially, how shall we regard spirits? Are, are they figments of our imagination? Are they natural phenomenon, just as real as you and me, or, or, or somewhere in between? And uh, this is a question that has troubled anthropologists, I guess, going back over a century. Definitely, yeah. I mean, if we look back to the very earliest, you know, the fact that we call them the founding fathers of anthropology, you know, they were interested in questions of the nature of spirit because, you know, they were coming from a very kind of positivistic perspective. They thought that science, you know, had become the kind of like the dominant framework for understanding the world. You know, we're talking like in the 19th century now. And when they were looking out into other cultures, you know, through their colonialist lenses, because obviously it was, you know, it was the empire that was, you know, giving people access to all of these different people. You know, they were seeing belief in spirits, uh, people who were practicing, you know, rituals in order to, you know, incorporate spirits and spirit possession practices and that kind of thing. You know, and then these early anthropologists were looking at this and, you know, trying to make sense of it in terms of their framework. And their framework, obviously, was that, you know, this has got to be wrong. You know, this kind of thing can't be happening. You know, our scientific materialist worldview gives us, you know, our complete picture of reality. And there's no room in it for spirits. So the early anthropologists often tried to come up with, um, you know, theories, different strategies to try and explain away, the, you know, the, these spirits, which are problematic for them. Um, so, you know, E.B. Tyler's famous uh, explanation was that, you know, the belief in spirits arises, you know, because primitive, you know, early human beings had misinterpreted, you know, dreams and other kinds of altered states of consciousness as real experiences, you know, and he's coming at that with the, you know, the preconceived idea that, you know, anything that comes through altered states of consciousness and things like that has got to be, you know, false. It doesn't fit in with their worldview. Yeah. So right from the very beginning, anthropologists have been you know, encountering these different systems, these different uh, different ideas about the nature of spirits and different gods and deities and things, but usually trying to explain it away in terms that don't kind of clash with the dominant materialist worldview. And at the same time, though, with the uh, 
19th century, you had the you know, Society for Psychical Research being formed and uh, some very prominent researchers uh, looking seriously at the existence of spirits. That also must have had a, an impact upon uh, some anthropologists. Yeah, I mean, Andrew Lang, for example, he, he's kind of one of my one of my heroes in a way. <laughs> he can, He came up with this idea of comparative psychical research. So on the one hand, he was a folklorist and an anthropologist, and you know he would collect uh, fairy stories. He's famous for his collections of fairy stories. Um, and then on the other hand, he was also he became uh, president of the SPR um, for a, for a time, you know, and he was deeply interested in psychical research and the developments of, that were taking place in that field. And you know, kind of like a like a, a predecessor to this lineage of paranthropology that I've been involved in you know, trying to encourage anthropologists of his day to take seriously the literature that was coming out of psychical research, but also trying to get the psychical researchers who were only really looking at, you know, spirit mediumship in, in London and places like that, you know, Western mediumship, um, to think about the wider context as well. You know, the, the different, different cultures around the world that were doing, you know, different kinds, but different kinds of practices, but that maybe had similar underlying processes and that kind of thing. So there were two different trajectories within anthropology right from the very beginning. There was one that was interested in, you know, um, reducing these experiences down and explaining them away in materialist terms. And then there was the kind of Andrew Lang uh, side of things that was more interested in um, exploring the possibility that spirits might be real and that there might be scientific ways that we can investigate these things. Yeah, how, how far did the Andrew Lang school get? Would, I know it, he's been a big influence on you, but uh, over you know the last century, how, has he been very influential? He kind of um, kind of ebbs in and out of favor, uh, which kind of happens a lot with these kind of uh, liminal characters, you know, because he was between psychical research and anthropology, so he's never really, you know, he's never really fully in one camp or the other. Um, but, you know, there were efforts in the 1960s and 70s to, you know, to bring anthropology and parapsychology together. And they would look back into the literature, you know, in exactly the same way that I did. And they would find Andrew Lang and hold him up as this, you know, as a hero because he was promoting this comparative psychical research, you know, way back in the 19th century. And so really, you know, all of the, you know, paranthropology and transpersonal anthropology and all of that kind of stuff really starts with, um, Andrew Lang, I guess. Now, I gather that uh, a number of anthropologists sort of took a middle ground, uh, which is to say that rather than judge whether spirits are real or not in a in a physical sense or a naturalistic or biological sense, they say, why don't we consider them real psychological phenomenon or real sociological phenomenon? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I guess this falls into the category of like relativism and, and all of that kind of stuff. You know, in the towards the end of the 19th century, when anthropologists started to move away from the kind of colonialist kind of attitudes of people like Tyler, and they started to do actual field work, you know, they would go into the field and actually live with people. And they would move away from, you know, the, all those old Victorian anthropologists were considered like armchair anthropologists. That's what they would do. You know, they would sit in their libraries looking through the accounts of missionaries and explorers and things like that and come up with these grand theories of, you know, social evolution <laughs> based on these secondhand accounts. So the new generation of anthropologists, which was, you know, be epitomized by people like um, Bronislaw Malinowski in, the, in Britain, well, he was, you know, Polish-British, and also Franz Boas in America, um, they would go and they would actually do field work with people and live with them. And what they found was that, you know, what the Victorian anthropologists have thought of as kind of like um, primitive, superstitious, um, irrational. Actually, when you lived in those systems, they were put, they make perfect sense. And they were, you know, it was a perfectly rational way of living in the world and of understanding the world, making sense of the, of, you know, different kinds of things like, you know, misfortunes and things like that. So these guys, you know, through living with people, found that actually magic and all of this kind of stuff wasn't primitive. 
it wasn't irrational and it wasn't, I, I can't remember who said it, I think it was um, Evans Pritchard, it wasn't irreconcilable with a rational appreciation of nature. Okay, so they were, you know, rational people, but they also included you know, spirit beliefs into their rational systems. So relativism then becomes like a strategy, again, for sort of accepting the fact that these are rational systems, you know, by saying that we can't judge one culture against another. Um, but also relativism comes with a kind of, it's still, it's almost as though it's still trying to reduce it down or still trying to protect the kind of Western model. Um, because it's saying, you know, there are different systems that we can't compare with each other, but our system is obviously the best one, <laughs> you know, the scientific materialist worldview. I, I imagine they might have also been influenced by uh, William James and, and C.S. Pearson, the philosophy of pragmatism, the sort of, you know, if it works for these people, it's true for them, and that's good enough. Yeah, exactly. That, that's, that's the kind of the line of thinking. And it's not necessarily concerned with whether it's true or not. Um, so, and, and this is kind of like the standard approach that anthropologists have taken for the last, you know, 50 or 60 years. Um, but this is the problem that that I find with that kind of approach is that it always gets to a certain point. It gets so far, and it's like these people believe in this stuff, and then, oh, but it can't actually be, you know, it can't be real real. It can be culturally real. It could be psychologically real or socially real, but it can't be, you know, ontologically real. <laughs> well, that's the question I want to push on. Uh, you know, you began your career by investigating spiritualists uh, in England, and uh, you had a lot of first-hand experience yourself. Yeah, my fieldwork was with um, a group of uh, developing trance and physical mediums in Bristol, and they were in this private home circle um, where they would, you know, they would meet regularly over weeks and months and ultimately over years as well to develop uh, trance mediumship and to try and produce, uh, you know, physical phenomena like ectoplasm and levitations and that kind of stuff. And yeah, um, the very first seance that I attended with them was actually quite an interesting one for me because I had a few experiences that um, seemed to accord with their worldview. <laughs> I'm going to put it in that way. You know, so, the, I mean, it was my very first seance as well. So it's it just strange the way it all seemed to to pan out. And gradually over time, you know, I stopped having as extraordinary experiences, you know, kind of like a decline effect seemed to be in action. But in this very first seance anyway, I saw small flashes of light behind the medium. Um, I saw a weird transformation of the, the medium's facial features and this sort of like um, a green mask that kind of appeared over the medium's face. And it kind of looked like, um, I always say it looked kind of like a Chinese monk, kind of a stereotypical image of a Chinese monk. It was a really strange experience because it was very um, kind of like hallucinatory. It felt like a hallucination. And I thought, I'm going to keep this to myself. I'm not going to tell any, anyone else about it. But then, you know, after the seance, you know, after we'd spoken to a few spirits, we went back out into the house to have, you know, tea and biscuits and that kind of thing. And someone else, one of the other sitters in the, in the seance, um, independently said, you know, did you see that green Chinese monk's face? And I was just like, I did see that Chinese monk's face, but it was a, it felt like a hallucination. So, you know, it opened up this, you know, my very first seance included a kind of like a shared hallucination, <laughs> which is pretty weird. Um, but, you know, having those kind of experiences, it blows open those kind of relativistic kind of frameworks and things like that because now you've got to confront this you know yourself you've got to deal with how do you fit these experiences that you've had into your you know worldview are you going to ignore them like people like tyler might have done or try and explain them away or we're going to explore them you know in their on their own terms and uh, and that kind of thing i think that's the kind of direction that i've gone in now i gather you worked with this group for uh, a period of uh, many months, maybe even years. Yeah, um, it was most intensely 
for a couple of years and then gradually um you know i stopped uh, going to seances and i stopped attending but I'm, I'm still in touch with the circle leader and you know I, I still have questions for her every now and again um but yeah it, it was a, a long-term thing my my whole phd took over it was like um seven or eight years quite a long time and so during that period uh, the spirits would um, come through a medium who's in a trance state, and you would engage in conversations with these ostensible spirits. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things I wanted to try and do was to use the spirits themselves as um, ethnographic informants, you know, so, so to talk to the spirits, you know, at, at the very least as if they were, you know, real spirits. And actually, I think, you know, I think they're, they're more than just as if, um, but you know, that was my approach at the time just to treat them as if they were real, real entities. So I would go to the seances, you know, they, one of the most interesting things about the process of communicating with them, and this is something that I've been thinking about recently was how the seance is kind of like a ritual. Um, it's, it's kind of like a ritual for bringing these spirits into social reality. So, you know, they, they do all sorts of different things. They, the mediums will go into altered states. The sitters around will probably also go into altered states because they've got, you know, dimmed lighting, there's music on, and all of these kind of things are all going on at the same time. And then the process of bringing spirits out of the uh, medium is kind of like a, I've been characterizing it recently as a kind of like a nurturing process. And it could take like, you know, it could take weeks or months for an individual spirit to make itself fully manifest. And the mediums will, you know, to begin with, if a spirit is trying to make itself known through the body, the medium might be twitching or having small spasms and things like that. And then the circle leader picks up on those tiny movements and says, right, this, and the spirit is trying to make itself, pre it's make itself known here. So we'll focus in on that and we'll encourage it. So it'll be like, you know, okay, move the finger again and things like that. And then gradually over time, you know, it might be one seance, it might be just the finger moves and then the next seance, the finger moves and then the arm lifts up and then the next seance, you know, a voice starts to come through. So it's a very slow and gradual kind of process. And I've been thinking recently about how more kind of like organic processual kind of approaches, um, organic ways of understanding might be a better fit. So, you know, in um, like the 19th century with mediumship, they were talking about things like the spiritual telegraph and that kind of thing. And they were applying, you know, technological um, mechanistic kind of metaphors to understanding it. But it, that's not the experience that I had with mediumship. You know, the it wasn't like they were tuning in and they were picking up a spirit that was definitively there. It was more like they were nurturing it like a kind of like a seed or an embryo or something like that. So, um, yeah, my line of thinking about mediumship has changed a lot recently to incorporate this more organic way of thinking. But, um, yeah, that's how the spirits came to be, you know, fully social uh, participants in the group. And then I would interview them. <laughs> I would imagine that uh, in order for this to even work in, at the sociological level, the spirits have to maintain a, a consistent personality. Exactly, yeah. Because they're trying to build up a diff like a, a solid image of, of the personality that they are. And the, the circle leader will, you know, she record, would record the seances and she would come back and check them, you know, for consistency, you know, over weeks and months. And eventually you'd end up with these you know, consistent personalities that you could have a conversation with, you know, just kind of like they become persons in the same way that, you know, anyone else is a person. Um, it's really interesting. And then to, it opens up, this, you know, our understanding of seances into these kind of like their social situations where everyday people have interactions with spirits or beings from whatever they are. <laughs> you know, it's pretty amazing stuff. I come from a family where my mother was in the theater. And, and so she would be able to go into different characters and portray them. And I've seen how uh, certain characters influenced my mother uh, in her whole personality and her outlook on life. They had a real presence in our family, but they were fictional characters. And she was an actress. 
I think there's something interesting about acting and performance, you know, more generally. You know, our Western way of thinking about acting and performance is that it is just putting on an act. You know, that's what we say. It's a, it's fake. But, you know, there are other traditions where performance is actually more of a kind of like a transformation. <laughs> you know, so perhaps, you know, the characters that your mother was, you know, enacting, you know, they, they were imaginary, but in the moment that they're being enacted, they become, you know, actual. Um, and this is something, a nice idea that um, Lawrence Lasham talked about, um, this idea of functional entities. Um, and he borrowed this idea from from mathematics. But he was trying to understand, I think it was Eileen Garrett's um, spirit guide, Uvani. And um, he said something like, you know, Uvani is this figure that he doesn't exist until the moment when he does exist. And he exists for his particular function at that time. And then, you know, he only exists when he exists. Uh, I think that's a pretty cool way of thinking about it. Well, Eileen Garrett was a, a great medium who uh, was studied over decades by different researchers and, and showed various physiological effects when she went into trance and all sorts of uh, information would come through her that uh, wasn't available to her conscious mind at all. Uh, that she seemed to know. Uh, so there are many examples like that in the history of uh, the study of of mediumship. Uh, I thought one of the most fascinating uh, examples you reported on had to do with uh, women, I believe a female anthropologist, perhaps male, I'm not sure offhand, but in doing field work and becoming initiated into uh, mediumship or sorcery in various indigenous cultures and witnessing firsthand many things uh, that that would seem completely outside the realm of uh, the Western mindset, such as the reanimation of a corpse. Yes, yes. Um Oh, what was the name of the anthropologist? Um, Bruce Grindle. That's it, Bruce Grindle. Yeah, he was um, an anthropologist and he was writing in the kind of 1980s, I think. And he went and he, there, there had been a, a murder. Um, I can't remember where exactly in the world it was, but there had been a murder in the village. So they, they had to do this kind of um, a divination to find out who the murderer was. And the, the, the point of it was to kind of like resurrect the corpse and uh, the corpse would reveal who the, the killer was, if I'm remembering it correctly. But the interesting thing about Bruce Grindle's account of this experience is that he describes it in real intricate ethnographic detail. And he talks about his own experiences of being like sleep deprived and all of these kind of things and how all of that kind of led into it. And then he's involved in the ritual performance at the end and he sees these strands of light appearing. I mean, it's very similar to, similar in some ways, not with the resurrecting corpse, but, you know, to the kind of experiences that I had in the onset of my, my own anomalous, extraordinary experiences. Yeah, and then these strands of light would move around the body and they, they reanimated in it. And it was, from what I remember, you know, the, the corpse was dancing and playing the drums and that kind of thing. But, you know, there are these kinds of experiences are recounted in the ethnographic literature all over the place. There's extraordinary encounters with orbs of light in deserts and, you know, even even anthropologists that um, we think of as kind of like, you know, the, the founding fathers or the kind of like the standard texts that we read, like Evans Pritchard, even E.B. Tyler had extraordinary experiences. <laughs> um, they just don't always include it in their ethnographies, or they do, and they try to explain it away in really mundane terms. But yeah, there's a lot of that kind of super extraordinary experiences in, in anthropology. And I think it's fair to say that in the history of uh, psychical research, there are many eminent psychical researchers who also report extraordinary phenomenon and, and are totally convinced as a result of their experiences of, of the reality of the spiritual world. Uh, people like uh, Sir Oliver Lodge, uh, I mean, who were at the very height of uh, British scientific society became convinced spiritualists. Yeah, it's amazing. And it just makes you, you know, it makes you think, you know, 
if these people were so convinced, what is it that they that had convinced them? <laughs> and it, for me, it makes me want to go out into the into the field to to find out to have those kind of experiences. I think that's an interesting point actually about psychical research as it was practiced in the 19th century and then what eventually became parapsychology we you know in the 20th century as in the 19th century psychical research was actually a lot more like anthropology you know the psychical researcher would go to a haunted house or they would you know they would they would go out and they would do the investigations and then gradually you know as we move into the 20th century parapsychology becomes more and more laboratory based and we're looking for you know statistical evidence for the existence of of psi i mean we call it psi and not spirits and things like that so you know i think that's part of the reason the culture was different in the 19th century and you know they were experiencing more extraordinary phenomena because the culture was ripe for it and actually as time has gone on you know our culture has kind of shut these things out and by not talking about them we kind of dwindle them as well I'm under the impression that uh, J.B. Rhine uh, in the 1930s made a definite uh, effort to move away from spiritualism and, and its investigation. Uh, I think he was a, a little bit intimidated by the possibilities of fraud and and by some of the colorful personalities like uh, Minna Crandon, who was a famous spiritualist medium of, of the 1920s and 30s, uh, who, who I think Ryan looked into and felt a little off-put by her flirtatiousness. Yeah, I know, yeah. And he was involved in um, the Marjorie mediumship, wasn't he? Exactly. Her her real name was Minna Crandon, but she was known as Marjorie, yeah. And uh, they found that her ectoplasm was like animal intestines and that kind of thing. It's interesting, yeah, there is that whole side of physical mediumship and the spiritualist movement it just became you know forever tainted by fraud and you know but people would think about it in only in those terms and forget the possibilities you know that you know the like white crow possibilities that some of these mediums might actually have been able to produce really weird <laughs> phenomena well in your experience working with a uh spiritualist circle for years did, did you have a reason to ever question their sincerity there was two different kinds of mediums that i encountered um during my field work on the one hand there was the mediums that i that would come to the lodge on a regular basis you know weekly mediums and they would you know they were really dedicated to it and they wouldn't be paid for it it was kind of their own part of their own spiritual development in a way you know and then we could come and sit and talk to them but you know it was it was on their time no money's been exchanged you know they're doing it for the love of developing trance which is fair enough and then on the other side of the coin there are the mediums who um who do like um guest demonstrations and they they will you know go to different lodges and you know you might have to pay like a 30 pound fee or something to you know for their transport and that kind of thing but you know for these kind of mediums it become it's more of like a job and um, i did have i went to a couple of, of seances like this and although there were some you know strange things going on in the seances they had a completely different kind of uh, a vibe and like you just couldn't i couldn't help but think that you know with this particular medium that you know, there was something else going on you know that wasn't not paranormal, basically, you know, that they would do, that there was tricks involved. But at the same time, I'm aware that, you know, in shamanistic traditions um, and all of this kind of stuff, trickery, magic, fraud, and all of that kind of stuff is totally intertwined with the genuine side of things as well. You know, so shamans will use sleight of hand and things like that in order to produce you know, alterations of people's consciousness, to change their perceptions of reality. And it's in those moments then when some genuine things might happen. So this is the kind of, you know, when you start to entertain these possibilities, then it's not possible to totally denounce, you know, like a, a seance as fraudulent. <laughs> like the, uh, there may have been elements of it that I thought were tricks or things like that. 
but at the same time, how do I know that they're not part of the kind of the medium's, you know, repertoire, his toolbox for inducing altered states and things in, in the sitters? So, you know, so there's a, a fine line that needs exploring with the, you know, the performance and reality kind of thing. Well, I think it's fair to say that uh, if you were to question parapsychologists today overall, you, you would find that they're sort of split down the middle uh, with regard to the ontological status of, of spirits. Mo most parapsychologists, I think, would admit that we haven't been able to absolutely, even in the most extreme manifestations, rule out the possibility that the phenomenon are produced not by the spirits of the deceased uh, or uh, other uh, worldly entities, but by the by the psychic powers of living people who are present. Yeah, this is a, it's called the the psi versus super psi or spirits versus super psi debate. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's a tricky one. <laughs> How can we definitively prove that you know we are receiving information from a discarnate spirit? or whether we're receiving information telepathically from some unknown, you know, non-physical source. I mean, I think probably the truth is, you know, when we have these kind of dichotomies, the truth is usually somewhere in the middle. So, you know, spirits and psi and telepathy and all of that kind of stuff are probably intimately connected. You know, there needs to be some kind of a mechanism for spirits to exist. So, you know, psi and telepathy are going to be involved somewhere along the line anyway. So it just becomes really, I don't know whether we will ever be able to fully disentangle psi and spirits from each other. But I think in a way it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater to say that spirits are not involved. I think it's interesting to look at uh, some of the strongest cases uh, for the uh, ontological reality of uh, spirits. Uh, one of those uh, we've reported on extensively on our YouTube channel. I call it the chess game from beyond the grave. A, a case, I, I believe it's from Sweden, where a spirit medium uh, was asked if they could find a deceased chess player uh, who would play a game of chess with a living grandmaster. And, and that actually occurred. A complete game of chess was played with a the living master Victor Korchnoi and the supposed uh, dead spirit of, of a, a chess, a renowned chess player who died in 1954, decades earlier, uh, named Geza Maroxi, who was a Hungarian, as I recall. And uh, the Hungarian, deceased Hungarian chess player lost the match, but people analyze it move by move and they say this, this was a, a game of chess played with a skill level well beyond that of uh, the medium. It was, it was played at the grandmaster uh, level. So uh, that would seem to imply not just information being communicated, but a, a unique skill that uh, uh, it's hard to explain that in terms of super psi. Yeah, yeah. A hint of the, the kind of personality or something like that, the character of the of the spirit. This is the kind of thing, though, that I think anthropologists need to become aware of because you know, there's all of this extraordinary data in psychical research and parapsychology, and there are these strong cases that suggest, you know, you know, dis discarnate spirits or, or, you know, whatever, however we want to call whatever we want to call them, spirits. And, you know, usually, you know, in anthropology of spirit mediumship and spirit possession and that kind of stuff, the explanations only go so far as, you know, like psychological explanations and social explanations. You know, they go, they resort to social functionalism to explain but they totally ignore the possibility that, you know, parapsychology and psychical research suggests that in some certain circumstances with exceptional people, you know, there is this, you know, connection to something that seems to be real out there. And, uh, you know, all of our anthropological and ethnographic theories that ignore all that kind of stuff will perhaps one day have to be totally, you know, reevaluated in light of this, the existence of the spiritual world, uh, which is pretty cool. And of course, I think from a theoretical level, uh, people are looking at 
uh, such things as higher dimensions of space uh, that make the possibility of uh, a spiritual world begin to seem more probable, I think, or at least not uh, as much in conflict with conventional science. Yeah, it's really interesting how these kind of trajectories of, you know, like you're saying, high dimensional physics and the different, you know, the possibilities of these different dimensions, but then also relating it back to, you know, traditional ecological knowledge, traditional indigenous knowledge systems, which have always been, you know, multi-world models, you know, multiple intelligences, different kinds of spirit interactions and relationships between our world and invisible worlds. So, you know, it's, I, I just, it's an interesting time that we're living in <laughs> where these, these different, you know, different traditions are starting to reveal something, you know, maybe solid. Another thing that it intrigues me is I know towards the end of the 19th century, uh, people like Sir William Crookes uh, reported seances in which there were full-bodied spirit materializations uh, that would occur. And, and I uh, have interviewed a, uh, an investigative journalist, Leslie Kane, who's written a book on survival after death. She reports that she's witnessed the very same phenomenon today. Yeah, it's really interesting. Ectoplasm is a strange thing. You know, one of the things that I was interested in, because I was looking at it, spiritualism from a cross-cultural perspective, was to try and find out if there are, you know, any cross-cultural parallels with ectoplasm. You know, it seems like a uniquely European kind of Western spiritualist concept. It's a physical substance that is <laughs> spiritual at the same time. But, and you know, I, I looked through the literature and I couldn't find much on it, but I did find a couple of interesting things that sounded kind of similar to ectoplasm. One of them was... Um, Edith Turner's experience with the extracting this gray plasma-like blob from the back of an afflicted patient. And that sounded a little bit like ectoplasm, but it wasn't like forming, forming shapes or limbs or anything like that. Another was um, a kind of magical phlegm that's produced by ayahuasqueros. So, you know, um, shamans who consume ayahuasca would produce this magical phlegm and they could get um, small objects out of it, you know, like... Um, arrowheads and things like that, poison darts and stuff. So that sounded a little bit like ectoplasm as well. And then another really interesting one was an Aboriginal Australian um, account. I think it was an anthropologist called Ronald Rose that described it. And um, they were talking about this rope that the medicine men would produce. They would pull it out of their mouths, a rope that would move independently, um, kind of like a snake. And he was saying that the anthropologist and you know the westerners they couldn't see this magical rope but the other tribe members could see this thing moving around and they were describing it so they were, they were arguing that there might have been some kind of a you know a psychic component to the manifestation of the of the the magical rope the ectoplasm so although it seems like a uniquely western idea there are actually cross cultural you know parallels as well which make it Again, that little bit more interesting. <laughs> it seems so strange that it should, you know, if, it, if it's just a cultural thing, that it should emerge like that. Well, it does seem that the phenomenon are shaped by cultural expectations. Definitely, yeah, definitely they are, yeah. I mean, one, one just sticking with ectoplasm for a minute, I've also thought about ectoplasm as a unique cultural manifestation. Because if you think about 19th century um, society, you know, people talk about the like a schism between science and religion and all of that kind of stuff going on in the 19th century, you know, and Darwinism and all of that is taking off. And you can think about um, groups like the Society for Psychical Research as kind of like trying to bind, to bridge the gap between science and spirituality or science and religion. And they needed something. <laughs> You know, they needed something that bridged that gap. And ectoplasm kind of fulfills that role. It's a physical substance that you can take a sample of and take into the lab, but it's also 
connected to the spiritual world. It's the it's the kind of like the juncture between this world and the spiritual world. So you could also think maybe of ectoplasm as kind of like a you know a thought form or something that Victorian society needed in order to bridge the gap between science and spirituality. So it is definitely influenced by culture as well. But there's also a pre-cultural thing going on too. Another aspect of uh, psychical research that has always fascinated me is what is known as the cross-correspondences, where it seems as if a, a particular spiritual entity, such as the deceased researcher F.W.H. Myers, would appear through different mediums on different continents uh, with messages that only seem to make sense when you took them and, and put them all together like pieces of a puzzle. Yeah, and fragments of uh, poetry and things, because he was a classicist, so you know he'd have fragments of ancient Greek poetry coming through one medium on one side of the world in India and then one coming through in London, you know, and the only thing, like you're saying before, things that seem to hint at the character of the, of the person coming through as well, more than just sigh. And another interesting contemporary example of uh, that, which I'm aware is we were referring to the Marjorie mediumship, which uh, attracted enormous public attention in the 1920s, I think in 1930s, uh, across the United States. Uh, Harry Houdini was involved. So the Scientific American was going to offer an award for proof of spiritual reality. I think they nearly gave it to her until Houdini intervened and he insisted it was fraud. But her spirit guide uh, was supposedly her deceased brother, Walter. Now, it turns out, according to Leslie Kane, that this very same spirit, Walter, is, is now speaking through a medium in the United Kingdom, Stuart Alexander, who is producing physical phenomena very uh, much akin to the phenomenon attributed to uh, the Marjorie mediumship so long ago. There are a few spirits like that that um, seem to come through, um, you know, key figures from Psychical research seemed to come through. Um, you also get the odd kind of like celebrity as well coming through in seances. And there are certain characters that are really, you know, distinctive characters that it's easy for them to express themselves. I want to put it that way. You know, like people like Louis Armstrong, I've encountered. And um, in the UK, there's a comedian called Tommy Cooper. <laughs> um, he wears like a little red fez. Um, people like that. So, you know, it's a, it's quite, it's tricky. <laughs> I think it's tricky um, whether these are actually the, the people that they claim they are or whether there are just, you know, on the one hand, it might be the mediums themselves creating these characters from distinctive personalities that are easy to enact. Or it could be, you know, discarnate spirits doing exactly the same thing, using you know, and kind of like an archetype of a, a character, you know, a very distinctive person like Winston Churchill, for example, <laughs> and using that in order to express themselves. But, you know, yeah, I don't know definitively whether these are these spirits are who they claim to be or not. I, I'm sure it's very tricky in, in many, many cases. But let me ask you this question, Jack, if you had to put a a probability figure on it. What would you say is is the probability in your estimation after having researched this phenomenon for many, many years that uh, such a thing as autonomous spirits actually are, I'm, I'm going to call them a, a natural phenomenon, that someday we will understand them as a, a natural part of uh, the world? And if I was going to put a probability on it, I would say that it's probably pretty certain. I mean, just sticking with, well, going, uh, last time we spoke about e ecology and, and the paranormal. You know, when we look at the living world around us, plants, the trees, the rocks, um, all of these things, these entities that are out there, they also have consciousness. So, you know, we don't have to look far to see that there are other kinds of other forms of consciousness out there, you know. The things that we live with around us that we usually we take for granted, like you know the the, flat, the plants in the garden, also possess a form of consciousness that we haven't really you know engaged with. 
So, you know, I think when it comes to these questions of whether there are spirits, like external spirits, non-physical spirits out there, I think we need to take a step back a little bit and engage with the, you know, the spirits that are actually manifest here around us, the different forms of consciousness, and then perhaps it will lead us into, you know, a more nuanced understanding of these non-physical spirits. And if we can't get our heads around the intelligence of plants, you know, the consciousness of trees and things like that, then how are we going to comprehend, you know, non-physical intelligence? You, you cited quite a bit of research uh, having to do with plants, uh, in particular, uh, uh, the research, I think her, her name is Gagliano. Uh, Monica. Monica Gagliano has done some fascinating research in uh, the area of plant consciousness and even, uh, as as I recall, uh, learning in in plants. Yeah, which suggests memory as well. Memory and conditioned responses. Uh, But but now you also said rocks. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we can extrapolate from you know it it seems like to me human beings for a lot this is i'm going to go i'm going to have a little grand theory here <laughs> that human beings were at one time you know animals that we were enmeshed within the world and we understood it from the inside and then gradually we have moved away from that and we've sort of separated ourselves from nature um we've become kind of like obsessed with culture with our own systems that we've created and have forgotten to engage with that kind of stuff. And then through science, interestingly, people have started to re-engage with very small pockets of the, of the world. You know, so we have one scientist who spends all of their career investigating like lichen or something, and another scientist who spends all of their career investigating plants. And then, you know, through that process of engaging with them again on a very personal kind of like one-to-one level, we're realizing or kind of like re-remembering the, you know, the the other intelligence of these things, the consciousness. So we do that with, you know, first we we start to engage with the cats and things, you know, things that live around us, that, you know, live in our homes that we have easy access to. And then we expand that outwards and we start to engage with trees and things like that and people have all sorts of amazing experiences engaging with trees and then you expand it again and you start to spend time with rocks and you know the things that we usually consider as non uh, non-living elements of the environment but it's the engagement and the interaction with things that brings out the the s you know the thing inside the life inside of it I actually think it's a very similar process to what the mediumship development is all about. You know, in focusing in on the little movements and twitches and building it up, it's about building a relationship with that particular spirit. And it's the same with the rocks as well. So if we spend our time with a particular rock, engage with it, feel it and all of that kind of stuff. I know it sounds wishy-washy, but, you know, if we genuinely do. Then we start to we start to build up a new relationship with the rock. You know, and it starts to become, takes on the semblance of persons in just the same way as the spirits do through interaction. So, uh, yeah, I think, um, rocks probably, we will end up with some kind of a panpsychism. What you're saying is the, the teaching of mystics of almost every culture uh, that we are all one and that, uh, that we share one consciousness. So when we talk about the idea of of other spirits, it, it's almost paradoxical in, in a way that there that there could be more than one consciousness. This is an interesting thing, though, as well. I mean, in ecology, when we look at ecosystems ecosystems tend towards increased diversity and lots and lots of species makes up you know a strong ecosystem so although we have like the ecosystem as a wholeness or a one also within that there's a whole array of diversity and difference and it's that diversity and difference that gives the whole its strength in a way you know so i think you know although mystics talk about oneness and unity and all of that kind of stuff i don't think it necessarily it doesn't it doesn't get rid of the difference and the diversity and the you know all of the 
all of the different kinds of things that are going on in the world. Well, Jack Hunter, this has been a uh, fascinating discussion. I don't think we've necessarily gotten to the very bottom of this issue. It may be uh, going to take several more decades of exploration for researchers to get a, a real handle on the idea of autonomous spiritual entities uh, as part of the natural world. But uh, I have to commend you uh, for thinking deeply about the problem and uh, uh, pushing peop other people in your profession of anthropology to think deeply about it. Uh, Jack, thank you so much for being with me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.